At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I'm casting out demons, performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. This is the word of the Lord. Nine verses before this reading, Luke has written, Jesus went through one town and village after another, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. He has left Galilee, is going down the Jordan River Road toward Jerusalem, and Luke is going to tell us week by week what happened to him on the way. Number one, some Pharisees came and said, you need to get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. I have eight really good commentaries on the Gospel of Luke. I read all eight of them carefully this week. Four of them say that even though Luke usually depicts Pharisees as being opponents of Jesus, perhaps there were some not so vocal who were supporters of his. And the other four said, no, that's not what's going on here at all. These are opponents of Jesus. They are telling him this, and it may well have been true. He certainly had imprisoned John the baptizer and had him beheaded. They seem to be trying to see if Jesus is authentic or not. If he is not and he's threatened with his own death, he may break and run. But Luke has already been telling you and me, Jesus is not going to choose empire over neighborhood, to use Brueggemann's words. He's not going to choose empire. He's not going to ride the black stallion. He's going to ride the burro with his toes almost dragging the ground into the city of Jerusalem. He's marching, but not to Herod's drum, not to the Pharisees' drum. He is on the way to Jerusalem. Gail started watching a series on PBS this winter of Downton Abbey. Told me she thought I might like it as well. She and I usually watch in different rooms. She loves her clicker, and I like mine. And uh, I decided to give Downton Abbey a try. It's a great story. It's a fun story. It borders on soap opera, but it's a good story that's come out of Britain. It's a story about a magnificent country estate just before and during World War I. Next year, perhaps, they'll move us on past the war. They're already filming next winter's series. There have been a lot of good moments, I think, in Downton Abbey, but one occurred just recently. You know, if you've been watching, that it's like many other British shows of that period. That is, there are people of privilege and wealth, and there are people of no wealth and very few, if any, privileges. There are people who own Downton Abbey and its many grounds and animals, and there are people who work their lives away down in the kitchens, 
ironing, pressing, preparing meals, washing dishes. And one of those young women who is a part-time maid and part-time assistant to the cook is named Daisy. Little Daisy has nothing. She has nothing, no money, no real future. If she stays for years and years and years, one day she may get to be the cook. But as World War I comes on, and thousands of young British men are sent off to that war. Gail and I have been to Flanders Fields. We've seen that one battleground where the forces were entrenched, where they advanced no more than a couple of hundred yards, one direction or the other, for four long years. A half million young men died in the muck and mire of Flanders alone. So Downton Abbey is finally transformed during that war into a rehab center. Some of these young men can be taught again to walk on whatever wounded limbs or missing ones they have. But others have come there to die, and then a great flu spreads across and starts killing off more of them. And one of these young soldiers who's dying is tended by Daisy. She's been given permission to help work among these prisoners when she's not having to help cook or serve as maid. And one of these young men who knows he's dying probably within hours of dying, begs Daisy to marry him because he wants her to have the benefit of being a soldier's widow. Then much money, but any would be more than Daisy has. He begs her, pleads with her, please let the minister marry them. And Daisy finally agrees. He doesn't get better. Within a few hours, he dies. And then his father comes to claim his body. He wants to meet Daisy. When he's told that his son married her a few hours before he died, that she's getting the benefit that comes to the deceased closest of kin. But this is a kind old gentleman. He just sits and looks at Daisy and says, So you're the last person my son loved. I'm so glad to get to meet you. Would you come see me someday? We could have tea. You could have lunch. You see, our son was the only child we had that lived past infancy, and now he's gone and his mother's gone. Would you come someday? She says, sure, she would. And she does go, and they're having tea, scones. And he looks at her and says, I'm so glad my son had someone close at the end whom he loved. And for me, he gave me somebody for whom Now you know why the son was so kind, why he was so generous, why he wanted the last act he could perform to leave his benefit to this young woman who had nothing because that's the kind of father he's had. His father is that kind of man, generous and kind and God-fearing. So we know who Jesus' father is who's bidding him come on to Jerusalem. Number two, I must go where I must go, Jesus is saying. I'm not running from Herod. I'm going that way, to Jerusalem. Now, we know that this is the way Luke understands Jesus because he told us, the only one of the four Gospels to tell us that Jesus was taken to Jerusalem when he was 12 years old. And that when his parents went looking for him, they found him in the temple, talking with the elders. And he said to them, 
Did you not know I must be about the things of my father? Some translate, in my father's house. And earlier in Luke's gospel, we've also heard Jesus saying to the disciples, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and there suffer many things and be killed. One of the men in my Sunday school class said that he heard someone say one time that Jesus really thought the people in Jerusalem would stone him to death. And I said, that's possible. We know they would later stone young Stephen to death when they accused him of blasphemy. They rained down stones on his head until he died. But Jesus got handed over to the Romans, and their way was not stoning. Their way was crucifying. And how horrible a death that turned out to be. Nonetheless, the word was, I must. Dr. Fred Craddock, you know, was a professor at Phillips Theological Seminary in Enid, Oklahoma. We Methodists learned about Fred Craddock and enticed him away to our Candler School of Theology, Emory University in Atlanta, to a very prestigious endowed chair there. He taught there till he was 65 years old. But as more and more people got to know about Fred Craddock, Princeton University Seminary begged him to forsake a summer vacation one summer and come teach for them at Princeton Theological Seminary. He agreed to do that. He'd been there only a few days, he said, when he went into the commons, the dining room there on the campus at Princeton. It was really crowded right at the noon hour. He saw a young nun in full, full habit sitting alone at a table. So he walked over and asked, uh, May I share your table, sister? Oh, of course, she said. So he sat down and he said, uh, I'm Fred Craddock. I've come here to teach this summer in the Divinity School you a teacher? And she said, no, I'm a student. Oh, really? Yes, she said, I'm in the divinity school. Well, he said, I saw you're a nun, and with a habit I just assumed. And she said, well, I haven't been a nun very long. I was a buyer for Macy's, she said, in New York City. I was on the fast track. I was really moving up. I was engaged to be married to a very handsome young man. But every Sunday I went to Mass, and I heard something different different call during the week I would pray and I'd go back to mass on Sunday I'd hear that call in my deepest heart I'd go back to Macy's working hard for them all week and then I'd go back to mass Dr. Craddock says you have to remember that this young woman had come out of that generation you remember that generation the 60's the 70's when we had the sexual revolution when in fact drugs and alcohol abounded and the password became, if it feels good, do it. And now he said in all of our college universities we had the kids of that generation and many of them had bought into it 100%. This young woman said, one night I picked up the phone, I called my fiancé and asked him to come over to my apartment. And when he got there, I tried to explain as best I could and then handed him his ring. His eyes welled up. He gave me one more hug and turned and went away. I became a nun. One day, in my habit, I got on a subway in New York City. It was crowded, lots of people, and I reached up to grab one of those straps, and when I did, I happened to touch the hand of a young man, and he turned around, and it was he. We were six inches apart. He looked at me in my habit, his eyes welled up, so did mine. 
Subway stopped at the next stop. I said goodbye. He said goodbye, and I got off the train. And Fred Craddock said, as she told me, her eyes welled up again. She was saying, this is not easy, but I refuse to do it just because it feels good. She was marching to a different voice, you say, as was our Lord Jesus, of course. And then we have this plaintive cry, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you to myself? Like a mother hen gathers her brood. The great love and compassion. We've enjoyed and been blessed by Tom Albans being with us all this weekend. When I was a little boy, my family used the upper room devotional guides. Uh, at the breakfast table, you know, my dad was usually hurrying to get off to work, and the three of us were hurrying to get off and catch the school bus. And it was often my mom who did the reading, but while we ate, whatever it took, she was reading the upper room. Uh, I heard Tom say on Friday night at our session that they print 1.8 million of those every two months. So there are a lot of us who are reading and being blessed by the upper room ministries. Another one that I liked and been best blessed by over the years is Guidepost Magazine and the Daily Guidepost Devotional Guides. And one of my favorite writers there is Elizabeth Sherrill. You've heard me mention her name. You recall that Elizabeth Sherrill has written that she was not a religious person. Her family just never went to church. She said, I had no experience at all of God and the church. She got married. Her husband was the son of a a, a, a Christian minister, professor, but he'd given up, didn't go to church anymore, didn't put any pressure on her to, so she said, we didn't go. Uh, after we were married, at the time we had children, and then at age 35, with our children getting bigger, we thought, maybe they're missing something. Maybe we're not providing something. So we drove around the neighborhood, and we saw a Presbyterian church that was right pretty, and we said, well, let's try that Sunday. And so we trooped in and sat down near the back. Everything was very unfamiliar to us. But it only took a few Sundays, and it became more and more and more familiar. And one week, my husband and I talked it over and decided we need to make a commitment. And we talked to the pastor and asked him if we could profess faith and be baptized. Well, she's written, Elizabeth's now in her mid-80s. She wrote that one night she was caught in Manhattan. She'd had a long, long day, and now she was trying to catch the train out of, out of the city. She got down to Grand Central Station. Gail and I were there twice just last May. It's beautiful. They really restored it. It's magnificent again. And if you go, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, we did one day, uh, you can really look around and see everything. Don't get there at 5.30 in the afternoon. There are thousands of people pouring into Grand Central Station. And Elizabeth was caught in one of those mobs. She said, I was trying to get to my train. It was leaving at 6.58 p.m. And I was within 50 feet of it trying to push through these masses when it left the station. I glanced up on the board. The next train going my way was an hour from now. All right, it's 7 o'clock on Friday night. I'm not going to get out at least until 8 o'clock. I'm hungry. I look around and every snack shop is 50 people deep. So I just went over and sat down in one of those hard plastic chairs. I sat there looking at these teeming thousands of people. 
catching trains, getting off trains. I saw an older woman, not quite as old as I am, but too old to have a young baby in a stroller that she was pushing around. She had to be a grandmother type. I'd see her sort of moving in and out of the crowd with this stroller, trying to keep this child quiet. And every once in a while, she'd glance in my direction. Finally, she pushed that stroller right over to me and said, I, I hope you don't mind. I I've been looking at you occasionally because I think you have the kindest face. And I'm helped by people who have kind faces. And Elizabeth wrote, if I have a kind face, it's because I've been following Jesus as faithfully as I know how for 40 years. Number four. But you would not. I would have gathered you. But you wouldn't. You wouldn't. We still have to make a choice. Dr. Brueggemann said it's between the empire or the neighborhood. And the God of the neighborhood is Israel's God. That God who sent for us Gentiles, the Lord Jesus. Mary's baby, all grown up, a teacher, preacher, healer, worker of miracles, one crucified, one raised, that one. Still have to make a decision whether we want to follow that one or whether we do not. Ruth Peel has written also about Manhattan. She said it was a cold, dark, rainy morning. Pushed into a little diner. Every stool filled. People waiting two and three deep to get on one of those little stools at the counter. As much as anything, just get out of that cold rain. There's one chef back there, but one of those guys that could handle a spatula with one hand and break eggs with the other... He was working hard, fast as he could. And suddenly, above all the noise in that little diner, you heard a child's voice. I glanced down, and sitting on one of those stools was a little girl, maybe four years old. And what she said was, Mommy, don't they say grace in this place? And that chef smacked that spatula down on the grill loudly enough and everybody stopped talking, and he said, Of course we do, honey. Would you like to say it for us? And this four-year-old said, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our good. And I tell you, that place was transformed.